0: Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for our time tonight to be together, to uh, entrust ourselves to you and to what you would have for us. We Think of all that we have learned so far and all that you have prepared that we might learn of you even through our time tonight. We'd ask you attend to our time, that it would be a joy to not only our heart, but also a glory and an honor to you as we are changed by it. Tend to our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here we are in John chapter 19, and I want to focus our attention on verses 19 through 22. I'll begin reading in verse 16 just to kind of set the context for us. So then they delivered him to them to be crucified. That is, Pilate delivered him over to the Roman soldiers so that they might crucify him. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out. He bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When you consider all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you consider their accountings of what took place in the surrounding events around Jesus Christ being crucified, they all, in fact, have similar details. You could get a a book called The Harmony of the Gospels and read the crucifixion account side by side, line by line of all the gospels, and you would see there are similar details in them all, but as far as we can tell... And as far as other historians tell us, John was the only one who was the eyewitness of it. Of the four gospel writers, John was the only one who eyewitnessed the crucifixion. And so when we look at what John says, it makes sense for us that he would give greater detail than the other three synoptic gospels. That's what they are called. For example... It is only John that tells us that Jesus is leaving His own mother to the care of John Himself. You don't read about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You only see that here in the Gospel of John, to which John is writing. It's only here in John's Gospel that we hear the words of Jesus that were uttered while He was on the cross, I thirst, and those other great words that we studied last time, it is finished. John alone tells us that Jesus' side was pierced and that what flowed out of him was water and blood. And so that's that's just a, a little sampling, if you will, of the differences between John's gospel and the other three synoptic gospels. And the emphasis that is placed upon them obviously varies throughout John's writing. We know the intent of why John put all that he wrote here, and it's, for us, written by John in chapter 20 and verse 31, that he wrote this, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that through that believing, through that faith, we would have life in his name. But one of the greatest emphasis that John shows us in these details is in the title of the crime for which, at least according to Rome, Jesus is being put to death. And it's listed here for us in verse 19. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. As we read that title, as we focus our attention in on that title, we must not think it unusual to be here. It's not an unusual thing. In fact, Every one of the gospel writers gives some attention to at least some part of this title. In fact, if you were to compile all the gospels together, if you took a harmony of the gospels again and you looked at what is said in all of them and you put them all together, it would read something like this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's the full sentence if you took all of the Gospels together. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And putting that over the head of a convicted criminal was normal practice in the Roman Empire. The charge for which they were being crucified was on a placard put over their head on the place where they were crucified, on the cross itself. And so when you read each and every one of the Gospels, they all tell us of the crime of Jesus Christ and the substance of the crime. But when you look a bit more closely at John's account here in verse 19, we find something that John tells us that the others do not tell us. John tells us in verse 20 that these were written in three different languages. Inscription of the Jews read for the place, or therefore the inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew or Aramaic Hebrew that was spoken Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Now... We remember that crucifixion was somewhat of a common event in the Roman Empire, particularly in the outskirts. Nobody was ever crucified in Rome itself, but in the outskirts, in the provinces, they were crucified, and Pilate had the placard made, as they always did, and that was placed over the head of Jesus Christ. It was prepared and placed there, but placed there in three different languages. Now, God has given us His Word, and not one piece of it is unprofitable for us, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So therefore, every part of it is profitable, even those parts that make us scratch our head and wonder why it's even here. And here is one of those things. It's near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And the question I always have when I read things like that is, why? Why? There's been a whole lot of speculation in theological commentaries by other people. Some say that it explains the difference in the wording of the other Gospels. In other words, why the other Gospels say what they say in reference to this inscription. Because Matthew, they say, is writing to Jews, and therefore the Hebrew was to account for that. Some say Luke, since he was writing primarily to Greeks, therefore that accounts for the Greek that John's saying here. And of course, Mark and John refer to the Latin, they say. Well, it's very interesting. There's all kinds of theories as to that. But I don't think all of that is actually necessary to give us an understanding of this. I don't believe that God gave us, through John, that confusing of an idea. I don't believe that God gave this through John simply so that we would have some kind of divine key code by which we could decipher why the other gospels said what they said about the placard over Jesus' head. I think the answer is a bit less complicated than that. And I think the answer is just simply this. It shows us that while Jesus died as the Jewish king, He had a relationship that went beyond the Jews. While Jesus there was stated as the king of the Jews, and that being his charge, it was listed in three other languages because Jesus had a relationship that went beyond the Jews. And I hope to kind of lay that out for us tonight. At the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, all of these three languages were major Languages in the known world. And so, I think that John is just simply stating that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of everybody. He's the king of everybody. In other words, Pilate's words that were written on the placard are not just to the Jews, they're to all classes of people. Why? Because everybody's guilty. Jesus is not simply king of the Jews. Jesus is king of all. He's king to the world of religion. He is king to the world of wisdom. He is king to the world of politics. Whether people want to acknowledge that or not. Religion, i.e. being the Hebrew idea, Greek being the idea of wisdom, Latin being the idea of the political world. So John is declaring that he's king of everyone. In other words, he's not simply a Jewish savior. He's a savior of the Greeks and the Romans. In fact, he's a savior of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In a word, we could say it this way. He is savior of the world. And yet we understand and do not mean when we say that, that He is the Savior of universally all people. Because that's not true. There are people who are currently under the wrath of God who are no longer breathing the air that we breathe on the earth. They have died in their unbelief, and they are going to face for all eternity the wrath of God. So therefore it cannot be When we say world, that Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. It's been a long time and maybe we don't remember all the way back to John chapter 1. It said that the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Remember those words? The true light that gives light to every man is coming into the world. It said that he was in the world... And even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize it. In fact, John said in chapter 1 that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. First, or John chapter 1 verse 9 to 12. So from the very beginning of John's gospel John has been showing us God's provision for salvation from the penalty of sin and it's not just for the Jews in fact it's for all people why because all are guilty all are guilty But from that great number, from the great number of the universality of guiltiness of all people, made up of both Jew and Gentile, God has elected to save a mix of people. And I believe this is what John regularly implies when he speaks of the world in his gospel. When you look through the gospel of John and you hear the term world, see the term world very often... I think this is what he's speaking of. He doesn't mean world as if every single person, but rather people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. In fact, I believe when John the Baptist began his ministry, this is what he meant when he said of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did not mean that Jesus was taking away the sin. Universally, of all people in the world, that couldn't be true. In fact, it couldn't be true, especially in a few short hours when Judas hangs himself and goes to hell. How could Jesus have paid for his sin and Judas be paying for it as well in hell? The sacrifice of lambs in the Jewish community was strictly a Jewish practice. Especially at Passover. So if John the Baptist would have been thinking of only the Jew when he said that. He could have, in fact probably would have, said this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. He wouldn't have said who takes away the sin of the world. If he was just thinking of only the Jews, he would have said here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. In fact, that would have made more sense. But that's not what he said. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe thereby recognizing the distinctiveness of Christ's sacrifice to not save just believing Jews, but to save all those whom he has chosen to save. And I think this is how we need to understand what Jesus said even to Nicodemus. When he's speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 concerning the nature and need for new birth, right? You must be born again, he says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And then after that, he says to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Because God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. There's no universality in those words. There's no universal principle of salvation for all people of all time without distinction anywhere. This is the same thing we see throughout John's Gospel when Jesus speaks of being the light of the world. I think this is what is implied in chapter 4. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes outside to a people who were hated by the Jews. He goes into Samaria. And he goes to speak to the Samaritans. He speaks to the woman, a woman who comes to the well in the afternoon because she was the despised woman, come to find out she had multiple husbands. And she wasn't even a Jew. Chapter 6, Jesus says that he is the bread of life given for the life of the world. Chapter 10, he says that he's none other, he has other sheep who are not of this fold. In fact, go back to John chapter 11 for a minute because remember what John records for us through the words of Caiaphas in John chapter 11? John chapter 11, verse 49, but a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish. Or should not perish. Now, this he said not on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he also might gather together unto one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Then you find in the very next chapter, John chapter 12. That it's the Greeks who seek out Jesus. Not the Jews who came to him. It's the Greeks who seek out Jesus, beginning in verse 20. And Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light, verse 46 of John chapter 12, so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. So by the time you get to John chapter 19, where we are tonight... You and I should be thankful that this has been presented as it has been. That Jesus is not just a Savior of the Jews. It's God's way of telling us through John that He's not partial to anyone. Right? Here's how Paul said it in our study of Romans. For there is no what? Partiality with God. There is no partiality with God. Romans chapter 2 verse 11. What's Paul saying? Well, Paul's just simply saying that we, what we are seeing here in the John's gospel, salvation is for all kinds of people. exactly what we see. Jesus saves the thief. It's hanging right next to him. And Jesus, I believe, even saved the centurion who was watching him die, who said, truly, this was the Son of God. In other words, he's proclaiming grace To the great and he's proclaiming grace to those who are lowly. He's proclaiming grace to the poor and to the rich. Proclaiming grace to the fool, to the wise. doesn't matter the category we fit into. He's proclaiming grace through Jesus Christ. Now you may be saying to yourself, all right. What does all that have to do with the nameplate that you started this whole thing on? What's that have to do with the nameplate of Jesus Christ? Well, it has everything to do with it, really, because it was placed over the head of Jesus to designate his supposed crime. And that's what all people read. All people read this. This is his supposed crime, the king of the Jews. And yet, that's not the title that God sees over the head of Jesus. The signage in the mind of God is different. Late Donald Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way quote, There can be but one just method of salvation, and that is the method which God has devised in the infinite bounty of his being and has brought to us by the goodness of his heart and the sacrifice that flows from his loving kindness. God says to the human race in some, I will not look at what you have been. It makes no difference how you may have sunken in sin or how you have walked according to your standards. I will not take into account of the arrogance of your pride or the filth of your wallowing. I will not look at what you call iniquity, nor will I look at what you call goodness. I will bring you all to the gate and count you all as equal. I will ask you to admit that your garments or or I will ask you to admit that the gradations of human efforts and human attainments must be discarded and that you come one and all as bankrupts. Just admit that though you may have everything that satisfies your neighbors, you have nothing that satisfies me. And then say, God, or then God says, I will do everything for you and put righteousness to your account as a free gift without respect of person, Unquote. Here's how the apostle Paul put it to the people of Colossae. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcised of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, Paul is using the image of the nameplate, the nameplate that was placed on the cross. Paul is using that image as he writes to the Colossian believers the nameplate that is over the head of the criminal who hangs on the cross. And he's saying that though you and I have violated the holy law of God, and we deserve to die, it's our sin for which this criminal is dying. Yet we do not need to. We do not need to die. Why? Because Jesus, the innocent one, Took the place of all who are the called. And he died for their sin. You see over the head was the placard. That had the crime. Which was a truth about Jesus Christ. And yet in the mind of God was our crime. On the placard was nailed our crime. It was in him that our violation of God's law was punished. Therefore, because of that, God reached down to us, his chosen, and justified us through Christ as we entrust ourselves to him. Doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile, religious, intellectual, political, doesn't matter, every tongue, tribe, nation, the world. doesn't matter, Greek, Roman, we're all on the same ground. Jesus is the Savior. But have you noticed that the sign above Jesus' head didn't say that? It was written in three languages, right? Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And it was the crime for which he was condemned. But it doesn't actually refer to Him as Savior. It refers to Him as King. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And as we've already seen, I think, I think I've, I've made some effort at least to show us that the King of the, not just the Jews, but the King of the whole world, the King of all people. Why do I highlight that? Because king means more than what we might think in our minds. We know that a king is a ruler. As a ruler, the king has independent rights to do whatever he wishes. Right? If the king wants a subject under his kingdom to die, the king just... Says it and it happens. And when it happens, there are no reprisals to come against the king. He has absolute rule. That means that he is the master of all. Master simply means that. It means to rule. And so Jesus as king is the master. And there's another title that signifies Master. That's the title Lord. Jesus, King of the Jews, Master, but also Lord. In other words, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus being Savior goes inseparably together with Jesus being Lord. Let me say it another way. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord also. Let me repeat that. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without him also being Lord. For whatever reason, this has become a problem in evangelicalism over the past decades. For whatever reason, there is the idea within evangelicalism that you can have Jesus as, as savior, that you can have your sins forgiven, that you are secure in Christ. They will say that one day you will be with Jesus in the glories of heaven. But while you're here, prior to your translation into glory, while you're here on this earth, Your life can go on just like it did before. Live however you wish before you ever profess Jesus as Savior. Someday, hopefully, you'll make Him Lord of your life, but right now, Savior is enough. In other words, you have Jesus as a professed Savior of your life, but for some reason, He's not Lord of your life. And yet, right here in the words of John, that impossibility is implied. He is king. And implied in that word is both Savior and Lord. You say, what do you mean? Well, uh, the answer to our question can be answered by asking another question. What is Jesus to be Lord of, specifically? What is Jesus to be Lord of? If I've professed Jesus as my Savior, what is Jesus to be Lord of? And I think we get an indication here in the wording of John by listing it in these three languages. Because the first language tells us about Hebrew. Hebrew. The language of the religion of the day. That is simply to say that Jesus, being king, as John says it was written in the Hebrew Aramaic here, means that he is Lord. He is master in religion. He is master in religion. In other words, he is the only true representation of God and the only sure and certain proclaimer of the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. He is the ruler. He is the master. He is the Lord. He is the one who is the master of all real, true religion. So, when He is Lord in the area of religion, if Jesus is our Savior, then He is Lord in that area as well. Therefore, He's the only one who determines what it is you must believe. What you must believe concerning God. What you must believe concerning salvation. Jesus is the only one who defines that. No one else gets to define that. No other mantra gets to define that. It's only what Jesus says. If you have this in your mind, you will wade your way through a whole lot of confusion in evangelicalism today where people are confused about these things. Somehow they come up with these aberrant kind of ideas about how someone can be saved and not have Jesus as Lord. And yet right here it's pretty clear. You cannot say, well, I think that it's like this. You can't say that and be honest, and be right with the Scriptures. You cannot have an opinion that is contrary to the rightly divided Word of God. Our minds must be in tune with what God says. So if Jesus is truly our King... The king of the Jews and king of all who believe upon him, he is the king. If he is then the king, the question must always be what does he think? When I'm dealing with the issues of life, when I'm dealing with the issues of religion, when I'm dealing with the gospel, when I'm dealing with those kinds of things, what does Jesus think? What does he teach? That's the question we must be asking. What does he teach? But there's a second language here, you notice, right? He is Lord also in this second language, or what this second language, I think, represents. And that second language is the language of culture. It is the language of science, the language of philosophy. This is Greek. Jesus is king, and he is Lord as well in this area. It's His outlook that must drive how we look at our culture. Our worldview, our view of the world, our thinking about how the world ought to operate, the, the morals and customs and, and activities of the world in which we live, our worldview must be His worldview. If it's not... And every day the Scriptures are not challenging and exhorting us about our worldview, then we must always take the view of Scripture. When we're challenged as to the correct worldview, which way should we go? We have to always, if Jesus is our Savior, He's our Lord, as our Lord, He's our Master, He's the one who calls the shots, He is our King, we must always follow the view of Scripture, regardless of the world's opinion. Regardless of how many people are going that way. We must be like those in Hebrews chapter 11. Who maybe at times when we're standing there speaking the truth of the scriptures in a world that's nonsense. They ostracize us. Maybe we'll be that person. So be it. Regardless of the world's opinion of Jesus. And regardless of the world's opinion of us. Why? Because he's our king. He's our savior and lord. If Jesus is the supreme lawgiver, it is his law that must determine and govern our conduct. Therefore, we must be obedient to him, even when it means we live under governments that refuse to acknowledge him. So if Jesus is our Savior, then He is also the Lord as well. Why? Because He cannot be any other. He cannot be Savior without being Lord. Now, there is also here the world of politics. The third language. The world of politics. He's the Lord of religion. He's the Lord of the worldview, and lastly, he's the Lord of this last language, the law of politics. As the supreme lawgiver, we do not follow the laws of the land in contradiction to the laws of the word of God. We simply follow the word of God even at our own peril. So Jesus is Lord over religion. He's Lord over Philosophy and worldview. He's Lord over the world of politics and everything that goes on with it. This is what Pilate wrote over the head of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And there were many people who read it. It was a popular place. A lot of people going by. It was a spectacle of the day. Everyone got the message. And Pilate wrote what he wrote. Most likely to irritate the Jewish leadership. It worked. It worked. They were irritated. Because they come back to Pilate in verse 21. Saying to Pilate, don't write that. Don't write the king of the Jews. Don't make that statement that he's the king of the Jews. As if we're killing the king, our king. But that he said i king of the Jews. Jewish leadership had such a hatred for Jesus Christ that they didn't want even his death to give an appearance that he was what he claimed to be. And so it's ironic, isn't it, that the title not only spoke truth about Jesus Christ, but it revealed their hatred as well. What was true about Jesus Christ immediately uncovered the hatred of those who hated him. And that's what the cross does, doesn't it? That's what the cross of Jesus Christ does. It's a separator. It's a differentiator. Right? It reveals who people really are. It reveals where you stand. It revealed the difference between the two thieves who were hanging there with Jesus Christ. It showed the true nature of the crowd. It revealed the nature of the four women that watched Jesus die. They wept. Even revealed the heart of Pilate. You know what else? It reveals our hearts as well. That's what the cross does, it uncovers our heart. There are no hypocrites at the cross. There are no hypocrites in the cross. The masks are off. Why? Because the cross has no incidental followers. There are no incidental followers. Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. There are no incidental followers of Jesus. It's not a casual thing. There is no reality where Jesus is my Savior and he is not my Lord. It's... All or nothing at the cross. It's all or nothing. And so I I guess the question for us tonight is this. What does the cross show you to be? Not what do you think about the cross, but what does the cross show you to be? Because it's a revealer. Does it show you to be exactly what you are, a sinner without hope because you've never embraced the Savior? Or does it show you to be a true follower, one that knows that Jesus is not simply the professed Savior, but a true follower who truly knows that He's Savior and Lord? You want to know something? These words will never be altered. These words here will never be altered. That's what the grammar of verse 22 indicates. When Pilate answers the Jews, he says in a double Greek perfect tense. A double Greek perfect tense. That's like saying, so let it be written, so let it be done, and you're God who says it. Ho, ge, graphe, gay that's, that's the original language. Ho, ge, graphe, gay In other words, the past act of writing the words remains and it will not be altered ever. So I asked the question that I've entitled this whole message about. What's in a title? What's in a title? Well, it was just a title that those pagans wrote and put above Jesus' head. But the title we understand it to be is that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and that will never be altered. That will never be altered. Well, we'll get more next time. Getting close. Close to the end. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for this quick, rapid look at what you were saying, the implications of the reality of the very title above your head on the cross. That you are a savior of all kinds of different people, every tongue, tribe, nation, people from all over the world. But only those whom you've chosen to save will you save. Oh, we're so grateful, Lord, that you have, by your grace and mercy, extended your hand to us, that we might believe, I don't know, in this room, Lord, who, all of those who truly know you, but you do, right now they can know you if they would believe upon you. We ask that you would save them. Grant them your grace and mercy just as you have granted it to us and cause them to see their sin for what it is. Not just profess Jesus as Savior, but know, know the truth. He is Savior and Lord and may their life reflect that. Cause us to be obedient children of yours that we would not be ashamed in the end. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for paying the price for all who would ever believe and would trust you until the day you bring us home because you're merciful and you hold us fast. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.